Welcome to the 21st Century Feminist Podcast with Hannah St. George. This is my podcast where I talk about intersectional feminism, a feminism we can all be a part of. I'm so excited that this series is in collaboration with the incredible women's rights organisation Love and Power. For my first episode, I interviewed Love and Power's inspiring founders, Charlotte Fisher and Martha Jeffcott, on intersectionality and privilege. This is a trigger warning. In this episode, there are mentions of discrimination, sexual assault and gender-based violence. If you find any of these topics triggering, this episode may not be for you. Please also consider anyone around you that could hear this, as you may not be aware if these topics could affect them. So now to introduce my wonderful guests, Charlotte and Martha. Charlotte has worked on projects funded by the United Nations Development Programme, in peace mediation in Geneva and in large-scale organising in South Africa. As well as being a co-founder of Love and Power, Charlotte is also on the senior management team at Citizens UK. Martha has led a project funded by the Department of Health that enacted a city-wide response to sexual exploitation. As well as being a co-founder of Love and Power, Martha is also a gender-based violence consultant for police and the women's sector. Charlotte and Martha, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for giving me your time. That was so exciting. I don't even know how you found out some of that information about me, but I am very impressed. It's me dishing out information about you as usual, Charlotte. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a lovely intro. Thank you, Hannah. It is lovely. I really appreciate it. We're excited to be here. So before we get started, could you please just introduce yourself with your names and pronouns? Yeah, sure. So my name is Charlotte Fisher and I use the pronouns she, her. My name is Martha Jeffcott and I use the pronouns she, her. please tell us about your organisation, Love and Power. Love and Power is the new feminist movement for the 21st century. Part of that came from watching the Women's March take place and seeing all these people take action and show their anger and share their stories. But there wasn't really a next step. There wasn't anywhere to go to learn, to get skilled up to connect with other people that cared about the same things as you, to learn how to run a campaign. And so we wanted to build it. It's a grassroots movement with an aspiration of building mass membership. And its aim is to train, support, connect and organise feminists. We have an ally membership for men because we think men are a really important part of the feminist struggle to support their work and play their part. But really we've built this around women and non-binary people and gender non-conforming people. We see ourselves in a tradition of lots of movements that came out of civil society, whether that is civil rights movement, suffragette movement, movements that came out of ordinary people as opposed to a political party. We want to be the kind of place where it helps you move your politics along, it helps you learn, helps you grow. And the last thing we're trying to build is a real sense of community. In some of Dr. Martin Luther King's work, the beloved community, what does it mean to be with a group of people where you're thinking about the health and flourishing of the whole group? For those listening that may not be familiar with the concept, Can you please define intersectionality and how it works in practice? When we talk about being an intersectional feminist organisation, it just means that we recognise the experience of being a woman are impacted by all their different identities and the impact that that has on the way that they experience the world. I'm sure you remember, but in boot camp, we used an analogy that I really love when we talk about intersectionality. If you remember like 90s R&B music videos, when they're in the recording studio and they've got that deck with all the sliding buttons that go up and down, When I think about intersectionality, I picture that in my head. We've all got a different board where the buttons are up or down. And if you think about the buttons as race, religion, gender identity, all those different things, 
we've all got a different mixing board and that impacts the way that we are treated. That was amazing. I love that analogy of the mixing board. Me too. Our um, trainer Swazik taught it to me. When discussing ideologies, I think it's so important to recognise why they were and are still needed and where they come from, which actually frames my next question. How and why did intersectional theory surrounding feminism begin? Intersectionality is the work of a black feminist American lawyer, civil rights advocate and academic called Kimberly Crenshaw. She was really looking for a term that brought to light the dynamics of discrimination that often get lost. She was particularly influenced by black civil rights movements that she thought didn't have gender analysis and by feminist movements that didn't have a racial justice analysis. And she was concerned that unless you talk about the specific types, like what happens at that specific intersection, that particularly for black women, a lot of that nuance just gets ignored. For us, it's really important to name and credit these thinkers, particularly because they were disproportionately black women who don't get named and thought of. And at the same time, we also want to hold that you don't have to have a master's degree in gender studies in order to come and be a feminist. And that these ideas are really tested by whether we put them into practice as well. And in fact, neither Martha nor I have a master's degree in gender studies and are still running a feminist organization and we're holding that tension and balance in it as well what are some examples of feminism that aren't intersectional and how can these be harmful some of the most famous examples are things like when white women fought to get the vote in america they fought for that right in some cases for only white women to have the vote and yet in the american suffrage story it's framed as being about all women but actually one group of women threw another group of women under the bus one example we talked about in our feminist boot camp is the idea of corporate feminism and an idea that you can buy your way to liberation so it's only about numbers of ceos for example, and not looking at things like, what about the cleaners? Like, are the cleaners disproportionately women? And what if the cleaners are disproportionately immigrant women of colour? What does that tell us about what is a feminist frame? And how, if a company really takes feminism seriously, are they providing childcare for the people at the bottom as well as the people at the top of the corporate hierarchy? Those systems are all doomed to continue systems of oppression and undermine the whole thing. And within feminism right now, there are also a lot of organisations that are trans-exclusionary, that don't consider trans women women. And we really disagree with that. We see a feminist analysis that says really narrow definitions of gender are dangerous, that feminism is about in many ways expanding our idea of what gender can be. Women was never meant to be a singular experience and it never has been. The issues that cisgender women face, transgender women often face and actually even higher rates sometimes. So trans people are three times more likely to be sexually assaulted yet are often excluded from support services. In the 1970s there was a similar fight in Britain and the US around where the lesbian rights for women's rights, where literally both movements had to vote that, yes, of course, lesbian rights are women's rights because they're all part of the experiences of being a woman. It's not new, this struggle, but we are really both firmly committed to it and also come from different experiences ourselves. Like, I'm Jewish from a refugee family and from London. I'm very middle class. Martha's a brummy. Like, we have moments where Martha calls me in on stuff and says, you know what, Charlotte, that isn't helpful. Or I say, actually, this framing, I think we could do better. And that's part of the joy and beauty of a feminist community is that you have people that hold you accountable, that push you to think about the world beyond your own experience and that help us build a world that is better and safer for all women and all people. But we can only do that if we're really honest and thoughtful about well, what are different people's different experiences right now. One thing that often comes up when talking about oppression is privilege. 
privileges a very specific form of oppression and it's only a very small part of it but how would you define privilege what has been so great about this summer and black lives matter getting the attention that it deserves is this conversation on privilege has become more mainstream i had a conversation with my stepdad about privilege for the first time ever and i think it's important because we're often encouraged to think about people who experience any form of oppression as being a disadvantage. Thinking about it in privilege gives us a flip to that conversation. So it encourages us to think about all the ways in which we benefit from that oppression in a wider sense. It encourages us to think about and our role in it. That's important because I think it gives us a level of agency to the ways that we interact with things. It's really about understanding where we're privileged in the world and the way that we're going to be received by particularly people who can oppress us. You mentioned having conversations with your stepdad around privilege. I thought that was really interesting because privilege can be invisible to those who have it until it's pointed out to them. In some cases, people may get defensive because in recognising you have privilege, you recognise that you've benefited from something that's unearned. So I wondered, what do you think would be a good way of initiating that conversation or making someone aware of their privilege if they might not be already? I think you're exactly right, Hannah. The examples that I sometimes use are examples from my own life. But if I'm talking about disability and able-bodied privilege, I say that when I leave the tube station and I go to my office, when I do that walk, I never think I've just cashed in on loads of able-bodied privilege. But if I were to list the ways that if I was in a wheelchair, that would be harder, there would be many. My office is upstairs. The pavement is not wide enough to put a ramp on at the angle of the steps. There is no lift in my station. The pavements are not even. If I choose to stay invisible, then I am not going to help any wheelchair user have a better, more accessible time in my city. That was a great example. If someone listening wanted to support Love and Power, how would they do this? You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're also www.loveandpower.co.uk. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Please show your support and stay updated on this podcast by subscribing and following us on Instagram at 21st Century Feminist Podcast.